Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, journalist and pulp historian Michelle Nolan and pulp collector Alex Doundakis discuss the first all-sports pulp magazine, Sports Story, and its pulp competitors. The presentation was part of a celebration of a centennial of the sports pulps. This podcast was recorded on August 5th at Pulp Fest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Michelle begins. I'd like to thank um, Alex for joining, call, answering my call and joining. He has, uh, uh, how many do you need, uh, Alex? How many issues? Oh, right now I need about 33. That's out of 429. <laughs> so, 431, I think the annuals. Well, no, actually the annual, it was 427 plus the annuals. Yeah. But um, anyway, there were two missing in 1928. Oh. Um, Anyway, they skipped a month of story for some reason. Um, anyway, Sports Story was published twice a month for about 16 years, and then it finished with four more years of uh, monthly. And so 427 plus two annuals at the end of its run, 1942 and 43. Um, anyway, I want to thank Alex, and he's going to interject uh, added content and context. And I figured if anybody should be up here, it's him, because I, there is no collection in the world larger except for the one at Syracuse University where they have all the Street and Smith magazines and papers. Um, I also want to thank, um, you know, Bill Lampkin here for putting together this PowerPoint presentation because I don't have the technical skill to do it, and he was kind enough to do it. Um, anyway, uh, what I'm going to talk about is basically, I know I have two books here. Uh, that mentioned sports story. This one has a lot on sports story. It's called Ball Tales. Both are McFarland. This is pulp baseball and football. And this one indexes all of the pulp baseball and football stories except sports story magazine because that's sports stories all online. And there's no point in putting it in a book. These are all things that most of them haven't been online. And uh, it took a long time to research. And I want to thank um, people like uh, Sheila Vanderbeek and Doug Ellis and other people who helped me a lot. With, you know, and I want to thank Deb, Deb Fulton, Doug's wife, for um, being so supportive and inspiring. And I also want to thank um, my friend Bob Carter in Bellingham, who had uh, to find a new home because the rental home went and he couldn't do the PowerPoint, so Bill stepped in. Anyway, I'm just saying that I had a heck of a lot of help and I greatly appreciate it. Sports Story is a mystery to fandom. And the reason is, and many of you may not really care much about it, and I appreciate you being here, but what it was, came out 19, September 5th, 1923, was the first issue, and I'll, uh, see, I think I can do this, there. And it was, uh, like Alex pointed out to me uh, just before that we talked, um, all of the stories in the first few issues were reprints from earlier publications because apparently they did not advertise for sports writers or sports fiction writers, of whom there weren't very many, to answer the call and for the new magazine. So they had to put out reprints in order to put out a magazine. Now after a few issues, they started getting original stories, but many of them came from people like Raul Whitfield and Harold Apollo and people famous more for mystery stories and other genres. So it, was a, it took a while to really produce a genuine, fresh sports publication. Um, Sports story, though, the average person in America was, uh, the average sports fan, I mean, uh, fact or fiction, was ready for a sports magazine because um, a character, Frank Merriwell, whom some of you may have heard of, um, Frank Merriwell was the closest thing to Superman. He didn't have superpowers, but he had incredible abilities. And he was published in a thousand uh, he was often called a hero of a thousand college stories, although they were some high school stories. But Frank was, and his brother uh, Dick and his son Frank Jr., were uh, in over a thousand, combined the three, they were in over a thousand nickel novel stories from 1896 to 1916. And then all of a sudden during World War, the U.S. participation in World War I and the immediate aftermath, 
there was this immense gap in sports stories for, especially for younger readers. They didn't exist. And, you know, there was an inevitable market for sports story. But the interesting thing is it only, that sports story, other than a couple of boxing things, like Fiction House of Spice Stories, Sports Story was the only sports magazine on the stands for 10 years. And that has never happened in the history of American genre fiction. It is also the least collected um, magazine in the history of American uh, genre fiction of the leaders. And it had, like say, 429 issues, including two annuals. And this magazine, I, I've cataloged each of the 429, and this magazine uh, was, uh, it sold about 150,000 copies. Isn't that right, Alex? About 150,000. That sounds about right. Um, but it's, it, Sports Story was an incredibly successful magazine, all things considered. And yet, apparently, it didn't start. It, it, I've never heard of a genre not starting a craze or a following. And look at comic books, look at um, all these science fiction magazines and everything else. So, I mean, you know, um, it's just amazing. Anyway, so with Frank Merriwell setting the path, um, he, um, uh, a lot of the people who read Sports Story to that start grew up with Frank Merriwell. And so they were familiar with heroics, sports heroics. The difference was the stories in the Sports Story were not heroics. They were far more realistic, um, you know, uh, whereas Frank Merriwell would usually win the game in the bottom of the ninth inning with a home run or something. In Sports Story, you had the agony of defeat and the frustration, and you had all kinds of... It was probably the most realistic pulp ever to hit the stands up to this point, in terms of true human life. And you might talk about the romance pulps, but they were almost totally uh, without any kind of reference to physical attraction. So, you know, in that sense, they were very unrealistic love stories. And, um, the, of course, the detective pulps had characters uh, who were basically supermen in, in drag. So, you know, it was just a, um, an incredible thing. Now, Sports Story, I guess, I, I'm not 100% sure of this, because the editors of Sports Story were three men named, uh, uh, well, there were actually more than three, but the, the three that lasted at least a few years. Uh, Lawrence Lee, Lon Murray, Ronald Oliphant, and Charles Moran. None of their names are even remotely known to readers today, uh, unlike John W. Campbell from Astounding and Daisy Bacon from Love Story and other editors, Joseph Shaw from Black Mass. There are many editors who are famous, even to us fans many years later. But sports magazines, not a, a sports not at all. And even the later the com competition that came along in the 30s wasn't, the editors were not well known. Um, there were no famous sports writers who ever became editors of sports pulps. It was considered a low-ranking job. Um, the covers were the best thing about some of the magazines. And uh, uh, Norman uh, Saunders, Earl Berge, A. Leslie Scott, Mo Modestine, A.W. Scott, Graves Gladney, they all did mini covers for Sports Story magazine. And the covers are often spectacular. They're, they're just wonderful. The only thing is, uh, and the leading genre was baseball with 94 covers. And I know that because Alex was kind enough to give me the final 40 covers I needed uh, for the research. And um, the, the thing about it is that it was, uh, it was a dramatic, the covers were dramatic. I mean, they, they portrayed situations that were not peaceful. And they, and, but the interesting thing is, they portrayed, let's see if I can get this right here, they portrayed sports that other sports, sports magazines starting in the mid-30s never portrayed, or almost never. Here's polo. Now, these are almost all, Sports Story magazine portrayed sports that were almost always entirely relating to upper-class white males. This, is a, this was almost the entire magazine. And if you look at these, there's not a person of color in any of these magazines. Are you, are you talking about all the covers of sports? Because there's, there's a few that Sports have, story magazines. Yeah, there's a few yeah. that have colors on them. They, there are? There, uh, there, I can think of two issues that had American Indians, and there's one oh, issue okay. that has a white boxer 
beating the hell out of a black one and you see the black eye and going down. what year was that? I'm talking oh, about the early ones. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking... These are the 1920s. There's yeah. two, well, at least there's, there's two in the 20s that have Indians. Okay. Well, anyway, they were uncommon, you know. Thanks, Alex. Here's um, speed skating and tennis, which, of course, was almost entirely played by white people in the 20s. Um, skiing, once again, a sport for the rich people. Um, wrestling. Uh, and you finally get to, I'll talk about this in a minute, finally get to foot. Football was not very often pub, uh, printed on. Later on, it was vastly popular in sports clubs, but for the first few years, you didn't see too many football covers. And, um, and then a guy named Max Brand came along and did a story called Thunderbolt. And it was about a player who was afraid of his love of the battle and how he loved him beat the living daylights out of any other human being, and it turned out to be a complicated psychological treatise on what it was like to have a father who was a criminal. And the, um, the athlete, in, in, it's a wonderful story. It was a three-part serial reprinted in one of the annuals later in its entirety, and it was a masterpiece. It was the only sports story Max Brand ever wrote. So it's pretty amazing. Um, of the covers, the, um, the World Series, uh, from the period of Sports Story Magazine, 1923 to 43, the World Series was only 20 years old when the magazine started. And the Yankees uh, won 12 of 21 pennants in the American League and 10 World Series championships during the time of Sports Story Magazine, led, led by Babe Ruth and then Lou Gehrig and later in the 30s, Joe DiMaggio. And so it was a... Uh, it was basically, uh, baseball was America's pastime. Yeah, but interestingly enough, when the first issue was published, the Yankees had never even won a pennant. This is true. In fact, the top team at that time in the American League was the Red Sox. Right. They had won five pennants and World Series. And the Yankees got Babe Ruth and Red Sox after the 1919 season, and nothing was ever the same. <laughs> um, Red Sox didn't win again until 2004. <laughs> Um, anyways, there were in uh, total, uh, from the total issues, there were 67 football covers because they caught up in the 30s and 40s. Almost all of them dealt with college football because college football, uh, the NFL started in the 1920s, but it was usually not referred to even by that name for a couple of years. And it's uh, in the 30s and 40s, it began a little more um, with features like the college all-star game and, and new teams created and those small towns like Pottstown and other NFL teams that were small, they, they bit the bullet and only big cities got teams. Uh, there were 49 boxing covers. Now some of you may not know this, but boxing was an incredibly popular sport in the 20s with uh, Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney and then there were famous earlier boxers, uh, Sullivan and you know, John O'Sullivan and others. And I don't really like boxing myself, so I kind of ignore it. I've always said, if anybody wants to write a story about boxing pulse, <laughs> you won't step on my toes, because I just I don't like boxing one bit. Interesting anyway, enough, go ahead. those are the worst ones to read, though, because the writers, and it's not just a writer, but whoever the writers are, they always try to have the pugs talk in that slang that the they think the pugs have, and it's almost impossible to decipher what they're saying. <laughs> and it's, 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 once again, through the decades, through the authors, and it's terrible. So it's, if you have a personal problem with, you know, boxing stories in general, reading them is also walking through a swamp. Uh, by the way, I described um, some of, like, the Brent Max Brand story, I described them in great detail in my story in The Pulpster, so I didn't want to repeat all that. So that's I'm trying to get to things more briefly. Um, so anyway, um, thanks, Alex. That, that was so true. And uh, but anyway, there were also um, far more track and field stories and sports stories than there ever would be again um, because of Jackson Shoals, who uh, was not only the best sprinter in the world at one point, but he also uh, was the best track rider and more fact or fiction, and no man ever wrote more about track than Jackson Scholes. And he, he personally contributed hundreds of stories to Sports Story Magazine, but he also wrote a lot of air war and other fiction for other publishers. Um, he also wrote over 40 books for uh, younger readers about sports. 
he was prolific. Um, and there were uh, uh, 39 basketball covers. And people have asked me, why is basketball so ignored by the sports clubs, relatively speaking? And the reason is the game was created in 1891 by James Naismith, and it really um, didn't get going for quite a while in any really great depth. And unfortunately, in our society, um, for the most part, until the Harlem Globetrotters came along, there were no black basketball stars because they weren't allowed to attend college, much less play basketball. And it was a sad time in our history. Um, of course, things have changed dramatically in the last uh, 70 or 80 years. Um, and there were 27 hockey covers. And Alex, talk a little about the hockey covers because I think they're interesting. There are 27 of them. Oh. They're fun. Actually, most of them, interesting enough, don't have goalies on them, which is really <laughs> odd because you'd imagine they'd go down, try and score a goal. Something that, most of them are just skating or puck handling. That's what I have to say about okay. hockey. <laughs> anyway, well, I just thought, I don't know much about hockey. It's another sport I've never been involved with. I've coached sports and played sports, but obviously not hockey. So anyway, the, um, the uh, sports, I did a survey uh, from 1935 to 1957 where the other sports pulps, and there was a very minor sports pulp called All-American Sports started from 33 to 38, but they had very mediocre riders and not a very good pulp. Uh, the real competition came along with dime sports in 1935. However, uh, one thing about All-American, yeah. they had the best covers you've ever seen. They're oh, yeah. beautiful. Covers were great. They're, they have Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, um, Carl Hubble. They're fantastic. The one slight problem with these issues that I found was that the covers have nothing to do with the guts. <laughs> That's right, never. You, you would never find a mention of Joe DiMaggio, Babe Ruth, whomever, inside the books. Yeah, they but were beautiful covers. But the stories were so poor that this magazine was no competition for a sports story. And the stories inside were abysmal compared to the covers. <laughs> anyway, maybe that's why I don't collect it too much. I only buy cheap copies, you know. Um, uh, I did a survey of the, uh, there were 1,257 sports polls published between 1935 when Dime Sports came along and 1957 when Super Sports was the last sports pulp from Columbia Publications. And of those, 548 had baseball covers and uh, 270 had football covers for a total of 18, 18, uh, 818 covers. So about two-thirds of all sports pulps from, for that 22-year period, including Sports Story, have either football or baseball covers. So you can tell the publishers didn't take too many years to determine that that's what sold the magazine. And also, um, as people of color began moving into sports, they appeared more often in stories in the last 10 years. Jackie Robinson really inspired a lot of writers. And um, there was, uh, the field changed a lot. Um, you know, from the first, from that first period when I showed you all those 1920s, um, you know, uh, covers from 23 to 31 actually. And uh, Bill put together this wonderful variety to show you that what they did. Okay, now in 1934, Jackson Shoals wrote a science fiction sports story which had no, no spaceships or rocket ships. What it had was considered humanly impossible. A Superman ran the mile in four minutes. Now, he didn't break four minutes. It was four minutes flat, as they said in the story, which was very contrived because to do that would be, the odds would be greatly against being one-tenth off either way. But... Um, his Jackson Schultz's character was a um, you know a, a total numbnuts, uh, very unpopular with the writers and the fans, and he just matured during the story enough to realize that what was really, and this is all in the pulpster, but what he talked about was what was really happening was that psychologically he began to realize that he wasn't running for himself; he was running for the American people. And he had three competitors from foreign countries, well, two from foreign countries, another from America. And all of his competitors were obnoxious numbnutses. And, and um, you know, it's a great story. And it talks about the maturity of this runner being able to reach four minutes. 
I'm kind of surprised he didn't have a break four minutes, but I guess the expression was the four-minute mile, and he picked up on that. But anyway, in 1954, 20 years later, Roger Bannister became the first human being to break four minutes in the mile. Since then, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of different runners in college and uh, Olympic sports break four minutes in the mile. And it's not that hard. It just requires incredible training. And on the other hand, there's never been a woman, run a biological woman, never been a biological woman run the mile in faster than 4.09. And so the world record for men is more than 30 seconds ahead of the world record for women. That is true in all sports. There is no Olympic event in the first 100, maybe 200 times that a woman has entered the field of the top times. And women win Olympic events among women. Well, I, I can actually expand upon that. I'm a season yeah. ticket holder for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. As a publicity stunt, they got the best female baseball player in the world, Kelsey Whitmore, to join the team last year. She's a pitcher. Where is this? Kelsey Whitmore, Where? Staten Island Ferry Hawks. The what? Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Oh, the, the, is that semi-pro or minor league? It is pro. It is a level between double-A and triple-A. Okay. It's in the Atlantic Professional Baseball League. And she is the best uh, female baseball player in the world. She's 24. She plays the outfield. She pitches. Her ERA over the last couple of years is about 11. <laughs> oh, no, that's the good part. The bad part is her hitting. She is about 1 for 31. I, I have covered sports. Thank you, Alex. I have covered sports for over 57 years. And I have never seen a female, I, I was a female, I mean, females are good athletes and the competition is every bit as good as men. And they're fun to watch and I have two family members who are great women's athletes. But as far as strength and speed go, it's vastly inferior. You know, if you're only going to talk about times, the men are way better and that applies to high school boys too. And it's grossly unfair to have, I don't have anything against uh, transgender people, but it's grossly unfair to have biological boys who are teenagers and haven't gone through all that stuff they have to go through later to, to compete with girls. It's just ridiculous. And I asked my two granddaughters what they would do if a boy joined, uh, played against them or with them, and they said, we'd walk off the field. Because in Kansas, um, they have common sense. But that's and not really a problem with regards to sports story. What's, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying the sports... Well, this, I was saying all this because this leads me to um, the next topic, which is... Uh, let me show you... Um, okay, there's the four-minute mile cover, and I think that's pretty cool. And um, it's just... They, had a, they usually accompany their lead story with an article, How the Finns Run. And at the time, Finland had some of the world's best runners. And so it was a technique story. Okay, but anyway, that's an incredible story. If you ever get a chance to read it, you should. It's phenomenal. The growth of that runner, it psychologically shows it a magnificent piece. Um, now we, well, I'll get to that. Oh, let me turn back to that for just a second, because we're getting back to, um, okay. The two, the two women's covers, um, well, actually, I, I just got to skip here because, sorry. Um, the, uh, there had never been a female on a, and uh, Bill selected this for the Pulpster and I was proud of him for doing that. There had never been a female on a sports pulp cover until this March 1939 number of Sports Story Magazine because the ironic thing is Modus Stein, the very nice artist, he put lipstick on the athletes. Well, I can guarantee you that women do not wear lipstick for the most part except for maybe one or two. Actually, that's and, not true. I'm, I'm a season ticket holder for the New York Liberty. Yeah. And, and the pros, they wear full makeup. Oh, they do? There's some okay. women, many women wear full makeup. Well, they don't. They, Seattle team doesn't, but that's interesting. But anyway, um, he just, it's at the time, they, it was kind of an inaccurate thing. But it's a beautiful cover. It is. And it's, it's uh, the first female um, sports cover. It's really a story. And um, I just think... Um, uh, and the stories are marvelous. There's a story by Jackson Scholes in the um, uh, in the issue and a technique story too, um, and how they do it. And women's basketball started out 
with um, nine players to a team. And uh, James Naismith did approve the game for girls, but they were, it was felt that girls could not run the full measure of the court and it would ruin the reproductive system. So they had a split. No, that's what they felt. Believe, it. Believe me, I know. I knew old gym teachers that felt the same way in the 60s. So you can imagine. There was if, a if, I may, if I may interject, yeah. although that is true, you should also say that, and I was reading in the third issue of Sports Story, a seven-on-seven seven basketball league. And I was saying to myself, how old is this story? <laughs> and I actually went and I looked up the records. It seems that when Naismith invented the game, of all the rules he had, he never said how many players were supposed to be on each team. Well, he did for the men, but not for the women. No, I actually looked it up. It, 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 he, didn't, he never specified. Well, However, at the turn of the century, yeah. that's when they start. It wasn't him, but they did. the leagues did specify for themselves how many players they needed to have. Well, I went to the Hall of Fame last year in Springfield, the Naismith Hall of Fame for basketball, and they, they had talked about Naismith making different rules for the two genders. And anyway, um, the... Uh, thing about um, basketball that made it so interesting was that um, it, it's a sport that either gender can play with great excitement. If you've ever seen Caitlin Clark from Iowa uh, play basketball or Angel Reese from LSU in the NCAA final this year, you'll know that women play basketball extremely well. It's just that the physical ability to compete with six foot six men. I mean, Brittany Griner is would not be in the NBA if she was in the NBA. Uh, she's a great women's player, but she's six foot nine. But she uh, doesn't have the power in the body to compete with the best men. She could be in a college team, probably. Uh, you get to a point where um, you know some of the girls are awfully good. Um, and I asked my granddaughter. She had forty five three point baskets made. I mean, I don't mention all state as a sophomore in Kansas, and I said, could you have played on the boys' team? She said, maybe as a backup, but they would have blocked all my shots. <laughs> so, she was very honest. I, I wanted to say, though, about this cover, what makes this story so exceptional is the hero of the story is a, a sports writer who expresses disdain for women's basketball, and he learns his lesson from some women, and they, um, they teach him that women do have ideas and can compete in sports. And it's just interesting how women taught this guy a lesson. Uh, it's a wonderful story, and the, uh, the uh, nonfiction story is great, too. Um, the um, other thing is, I'll go over to the softball one. Um, now, here you had a little bit of sex involved, but um, the, uh, they had a wonderful story um, by a guy named Bill Bryan, who wasn't well-known. But it's a, a great story about town team softball. And women, and this is the interesting thing about this is that Sports Story got it right when it did not refer to what I consider a non-sport, and that's slow pitch softball. Anybody can play slow pitch softball. Maybe some better than others, but it's an easy sport to play. Fast pitch takes incredible athletic ability to play, and every bit as much as other sports. And the leading men's fast pitch teams in the world could beat some baseball teams. And the leading women's pitcher of all time, uh, you know, Joyce, um, what was her first name, you remember? Anyway, Joyce was her name, her last name. She struck out uh, Reggie Jackson on three pitches once and in an exhibition. But, of course, the distance from home to, the, you know, it's a much 40 feet is different than, or 44, I guess it was at the time. Anyway, softball had different rules, and it was, um, it was uh, uh, portrayed in the story very well. And if you read the story, it's a story about both men's and women's heroics. And it's very, very good. And then they have a, a technique, or a, a factual story about how softball was attracting more fans than baseball in a lot of uh, minor league and town team situations. They didn't have major league softball, or, you know, they have had women's professional baseball later on. And that's been fairly, and of course, All American, you know, Girls League was was, um, you know, the movie uh, League of Their Own was illustrated how in the world, 1945 to 54, they had a wonderful league for women. By the I, way, they did have some women on the cover previously, but they were cheerleaders. Well, yeah, that's true. They were which, there. Which nowadays is considered a sport. Well, it can be, yeah. There are competitive cheerleaders, but nevertheless, cheerleading was not considered a sport in the 20s and 30s. And uh, it, it is now, but it wasn't then. Uh, but that wasn't what I was talking about. I'm talking about, you know, athletes.
uh, in terms of competitive team sports. Um, so anyway, um, then to go back, uh, Sports Story was the first um, sports pulp to actually put famous athletes. Let me go back to the first one there. This one, I'm not familiar with him. Pansky of the Irish, you know. Never heard he must have been either a coach or a player. I don't know. But anyway, I think it was a coach, but I don't know. This might have been the guy. Let's see. This was, this was after... Um, no, this was before Newt Rockney died in a plane crash. So I don't know what, what that deal is. But anyway, um, Mickey Cochran was the best catcher in baseball during that period of time in 1935. And he's on the cover. And they wrote incredibly good stories, uh, articles, I should say, not stories. They wrote incredibly good articles about various athletes. Nobody covered major league sports better than Sports Story magazine at the time. I mean, they did a wonderful job. And if you read the issues in the 30s and 40s, they have about as many articles that are nonfiction as fiction stories. And they're, they're wonderful magazines for, for history of sports, too. Um, there uh, was a story, okay, uh, Frank Thomas was a famous coach before, long before Bear Bryant, and he um, advocated passing before most coaches did, and they told that and that. And then uh, James A. Braddock, of course, was a uh, famous boxer and was, was quite good. And then um, here we had uh, how Army plays football, and our college sports were vastly bigger, much bigger than the pros in uh, football uh, back in that period. And um, it wasn't until the late 50s that the NFL really took over the colleges and got a lot more publicity and success. TV had a lot to do with that. Um, and then every now and then they would, they would have a comical type image. And personally, I don't like them, but some fans do. And um, so as an example. Um, did, did you ever see the Lou Gehrig cover? Uh, yes, that's hard. That, that's actually a comic cover. It, it and, but you would never know it's Lou Gehrig. All you do is see him sliding into a base with a ball hitting him in the face, and yeah. he's, he's totally obliviated. Yeah. Here's an interesting cover. It's fictional, but it's about a boxer with all with some of his teeth knocked out. And I've not read the story, but it's my understanding that this is a pretty good story. Uh, it was the um, uh, same guy that wrote the softball story, uh, Bob Bryan. But this, um, this is an example of what I mean about realism. Uh, my dad was a professional boxer before he got drafted in World War II. And he uh, wanted to do it after he uh, got out six years later. And mom had married him and said, no, you're not going to box. Um, and uh, made it very clear that he was never going to box again because of the image, the damage that boxing could do. So he became a college boxing coach. And the next thing you know, the NCAA banned boxing from colleges because so many kids were dying. And, you know, it was sad. But anyway, this is what I mean about the reality of life as reflected in the, the sports pulps were not, uh, you know, all fun and games. They were... They were grim, and they had a lot of them had very uh, tough stories and tough characters. Um, this is um, now we get to um, Lou Young. Lou Young was the uh, re, uh, the fictional version of what uh, 23 years later came along as Pete Rose, and he was an infielder. He was outspoken. He gambled. He was a wonderful character, and. The, um, the, the magazine uh, portrayed this guy as cocky, trash-talking, and everything. And he was a hero. He was liked by the, you know, everybody loved him because he was so bold. And up until Lou Young came along, there'd never been an ungentlemanly sports hero. And to the best of my knowledge, he was the first. And he wasn't like he was a criminal or anything, but he just was outspokenly bold. And he would take on anybody at any time. And the story, there were 15 Lou Young stories, and he really was an amazing person. And then, like I say, 23 years later, along comes the real-life Lou Young, Pete Rose, and it was very similar. Um, Lou Young was the only successful continuing character in any sports pulp. Um, there were a few. Uh, Maddie Matthews was also in Sports Story magazine, but a much lesser figure. And uh, But in general, um, it was a... 
uh, it was a remarkable thing to have an athlete written about. And uh, it was by, it said Ruman Hart, but that's an anagram. The author is uh, Arthur Mann. And he was a famous uh, sports writer. Later became a front office man with the Brooklyn Dodgers before they moved to Los Angeles. And Arthur Mann wrote a ton. He was incredibly prolific. And he, drew, he dreamed up Lou Young based on some of the ball player. He put together a bunch of attributes of ball players he knew into one rookie. And it would, Lou Young's rookie season is phenomenal. But you know, once again, he strikes out sometimes with the bases loaded and, and yells at the umpire and gets kicked out of the game. And you know, he's, he's just a very, um, you know, very uh, outspoken person. Okay, anyway, um, he was the first and last continuing hero in the sports bowl. Now, in the, in the fiction books, like Chip Hilton and Brock Burnett and other series books, there were lots of heroes in those. But those were designed primarily for teen readers. And, uh, okay, now here are the two annuals. And uh, these are very rare. Alex, how rare are they? I think they're very rare. Um, well, with regards to the first one, we saw the yellow cover. I had no trouble acquiring that. Okay. It, it's more available than the other one. The other one is a bit more scarce. But I, I wouldn't say that hardly scarce. In fact, if you were to ask me of all the sports stories, which are the hardest ones to come across, I would say anything from 1923. Even, I would agree with that. Even the Robert E. Howard ones. Actually, the Howard ones aren't so much scarce. They're just, you don't see them too often. But the 23s, they're just... Yeah, Robert E. Howard wrote three Kid Allison boxing stories, and um, they were uh, very fine boxing stories. He was a great boxing fiction writer. Probably the best ever, wouldn't you say? I mean, he was great. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Robert E. Howard was really a writer. What I wanted to also emphasize was that uh, in uh, Sports Stories' Length of Time, 1923 to 43 was one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. We had uh, the aftermath of World War I, the Roaring Twenties. We had Prohibition, which was an incredibly controversial law that led to a lot of lawlessness. We had the Great Depression, 1929 on, later, well, mostly 30 on, uh, Pearl Harbor and World War II. Um, and uh, <coughs> that reminds me that in the present day, uh, last uh, same period of time, We've had incredible terrorist attacks, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the Great Recession and the economic collapse of 08, election of Obama and Trump, historical elections, the COVID attack. Um, we've had, in the last, our period of time that we live in now is very similar to the period of time that Sports Story Magazine contended with. And the magazine ended in 1943, not, and I'll show you the last issue here, um, it's a patriotic issue, an athlete, a soldier. And they had quite a few of these in the sports clubs. Um, the, um, the athlete, uh, um, you know, in, in those days, they, um, they had a lot of patriotic covers. And it was interesting, um, in 1943, uh, I don't know if it was, maybe you know, Alex, but the, uh, or maybe somebody out there knows, Night Sports uh, Street and Smith had to give up several of their pulps in 1943, and of course they abandoned them all except the Digest side was founding in 1949. But in 43, I think the paper, um, I think they got rid of the pulps that weren't selling as well, and the Condé Nast was doing much better with their magazines and slicks, and so I guess um, that's what happened. By the way, the um, uh, stories in um, uh, Sports Story magazine in the first decade, they were read by people who grew up without airplanes, without automobiles, in many cases without telephones, which were invented in the late 1870s, without the electric light. Life in America a hundred years ago was far different than it is today. And it was even much farther different for the adult readers of Sports Story magazine when they were children. And the frontier was still open Many of the people who read Sports Story magazine either fought in the Civil War themselves or had fathers who fought in the Civil War. It was a very different period. And I think it's reflected in the stories and that sort of thing. Oh, I should mention one other thing about a continuing character. 
Frank Merriwell appeared and uh, he reappeared finally after many years of being out of uh, first edition circulation. He reappeared in 1927 and 28 with seven serial, two-part serials in sports stories. So there were 14 stories, uh, count of serial in this case is two stories, devoted to a character. And, um, and then he later made a few appearances in Top Notch and um, you know, Fame and Fortune Pulp, which was based on business. But Frank Merriwell, some of his adventures were not sports, they were business, they were globe trotting and gold mining and business adventures and things like that. But anyway, um, I just wanted to say that um, he was the first continuing character, but he doesn't really count because he'd been proven wildly successful, um, you know, uh, in his own right. And um, I don't know why they brought him back, but the man who invented him created him, uh, Gilbert Patton, uh, who ran, wrote as Burt Standish, which was a house name for Street and Smith. Um, Frank Merriwell was, um, uh, did not last. Apparently, he just wasn't popular enough in the 20s to go on into the 30s. So there were no new Frank Merriwell stories until um, the 1970s when there were a few paperbacks. But for the most part, um, um, it was just an interesting experiment that Sports Story um, did to see if Frank Merriwell could be revived. And the answer was the American public didn't need a hero. And so for many years in the sports pulps, it didn't work. In, in the 1935, Dime Sports came along and very soon we had uh, thrilling sports from standard publications. We had um, uh, uh, star sports from Marvel. Um, we had um, uh, super sports from Columbia. And we had many other uh, sports pulps. And by and then Fiction House came up with a lot of football and baseball single sport pulps. And pretty soon, um, sports pulps became pretty popular, and all told, between 1935 and 1957, there were about 50 titles tried. But here's how influential Sports Story was. Sports Story ran 429 issues, including the two annuals. The entire rest of the field, you know, including nine issues of another Street and Smith short-lived sports pulp athlete, 1939-40, but the entire rest of the field, from 1935 to 1957, published slightly over 1,000 sports pulps. That's it. And that's the fewest genre pulps of any genre ever. In, you know, even the minor genres like air war and whatnot. Um, uh, sports just didn't make it. And comic books were even worse. Uh, true sport picture stories ran 50 issues uh, in the 1940s, but then Street and Smith abandoned all of its comic books in 1949, along with its pulps. And, um, the uh, publisher decided that the Condé Nast side was worth a great deal more. And Astounding was the only one they kept because it, it was uh, selling well and Campbell was doing well. But, uh, John W. Campbell. But the, the um, um, interesting thing about the sports, uh, uh, you know, the variation was uh, they had 50 titles for a thousand issues. And they just kept trying. Goodman tried six different titles that utterly failed in the late 40s. And, you know, Martin Goodman, the publisher of Marvel Comics, and you know, he, he did pulps too, but he, it just was a dismal failure for him. And he could never figure out, Stan Lee told me, he could never figure out why sports pulps didn't succeed because he had attractive covers, he had some good writers, but nobody bought them. And to this day, it's a bit of a mystery why sports pulps are such a minor league genre. Well, I think part of the problem there is this. People who want to read about sports want to read about real sports because that's something unlike The Shadow or Cthulhu or whatever the hell you have. This actually is happening. You want to watch, you want to read about your, a baseball team that's winning the pennant. You can turn on the Yankees. You don't have to go to a imagination. And this, and He's so, exactly right. Because <laughs> I remember speaking to someone, I said, I don't understand why there is no sports fiction nowadays. And this was 20 years ago. I said, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, Six of them, six of the top 20, are books about sports. But Joe Torre's life story. They're all non-fiction, aren't they? Yeah, well, yeah. Yes, but Joe Torre's life story, this guy, that guy. He said, yeah, they're all true stories. They want to read about real things. They don't want to read about fictitious because they have real things to read about. Personally, I love reading sports pulps. 
in general. But not so much for, let's just say, the story itself. I love sports. I love all different sports. Well, the four ones, the four major team ones at the very least. And when I pick up an issue, I can go back to that time period and get a real flavor of what it's like to go to an NHL game in 1936, uh, a college basketball game in 39, a baseball game in 1929. In fact, it's funny, but the first year as well, the first four or five months of sports story, they have stories from around the turn of the century. My biggest problem is that although you can tell these are not current stories of 23, you can't put your finger down precisely on what year it is. I, the story I was telling about seven basketball players per side, I'd love to know what year is that? Also, this is a side note, forgive me for going off on a little parallel. In the third issue, they actually had a weird sports story. They had a werewolf play on a college football team. <laughs> that was funny, wasn't it? And it was, quote unquote, a real werewolf in that the guy suffered from lycanthropy. Like lycanthropy, yeah. And uh, they cured him, though. Uh, the problem was he was about to get banned for biting the other players when he was making a tackle. <laughs> that was a pretty good story. Thanks for reminding me of that, though. You're welcome. Um, every fact, now and then, they had, uh, they had some off-the-wall stuff. They did have stories in super sports. Columbia is successful, only successful sports ball out of many. Um, they did have stories with women in the 50s, and the, the women always played baseball, never any other sport. And they always had moments of glory among, along with many moments of frustration. But most of all, they were frustrated because the players kept hitting on them while they were on the base. <laughs> you know, the first baseman would be flirting with the hitter. She gets a hit, and then he flirts with her at first base. And the stories are incredibly stereotypically sexist. And there's almost no real imagination shown by the writers. And, um, of course, that was Columbia, very poor, poor, uh, poorly written stories in many of their pulps. But, my gosh, um, you know, it was, it's so funny to read these descriptions and but once again, never on the cover, never the lead story, but just part of the, you know, mostly just human interest, I guess. Um, does anybody have any uh, questions about uh, the sports ball field? Anything like that? Um, yeah, oh, go ahead. Real quickly, you mentioned 1923, so hard to find. Was that because they were all sold so fast? Or you mean they're hard to find? Yeah. Alex, can you, you address that? You know, I don't really know because it's really odd. Starting in late, 19, late April 1924, right after that, you can find almost every issue for the next five years. They're not hard to get in the least. But prior to that, say September of 23 to early 1924, very difficult, very difficult. It doesn't matter the issue. And it's not, oh, the first issue, the second, it's true across the boards. I really have no idea. I would assume that starting in, in, let's say, later April of 24, people started buying it more. And therefore, there were more issues around to be saved. And also, keep in mind, people saved, let's say, sci-fi issues. People saved some horror issues. How many people were saving sports pulps in general? Except, of course, if you had a great cover of Mickey Cochran, Babe Ruth, so forth, so on. And, in fact, the early covers, if you notice with Sports Story, they weren't even original covers. I believe they were taking interior illustrations and just colorizing them from previous uh, sports pulps. Well, Alex is 100% correct in everything he said, in my opinion. And um, he uh, pointed out that it is very hard to find those first few uh, Sports Story magazines I don't think they sold. They, they had a circulation of 150,000. Uh, Which is very low for a pulp. Yeah, they, but that was cited by um, the Fiction Factory. The book Quentin Reynolds wrote in 1955 on the Street Smith story. But Sports Story Magazine in general um, was probably their least successful uh, primary pulp. Um, any other questions? I'm getting the high size walker. Uh, two comments. Uh, the first comment deals with uh, uh, 
I think that article in the Pulster was one of the best that I've read. A nice long article. Oh, thank you. And we need more research along those lines because there's hardly anything being written about the sport magazines. My second comment. I have the two books I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to buy them, you know, not for me, but you can order them from Amazon. My second comment deals with the fact that over the last several years, I've tried to get you to sell me your sport magazine collection. <laughs> you just struck out on three pitches looking. <laughs> I badgered you. I even threatened you. I throw money at you. Nothing works. So my final attempt right now, have pity on a poor old guy who's running out. You struck out on three pitches looking. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, can I can I take one more question? There, gentleman there had one. Okay, one more. Uh, what was the name of that horrible story? Oh, ask Alex. I'm sorry, I, I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, it was like in the third issue, and 1923. Yeah. Um, just, just so you're clear, it wasn't a horror story. He didn't turn into a werewolf with fangs. He just, under extreme pressure, reverted to a wolf and started biting the guy he was tackling. But it, it, it really did play like a, a weird menace type of story. If, if you can. In, in fact, of all the pulp, sports pulps I've read, I've read maybe a hundred or so, that is the one that is the only one that comes anywhere near Weird Mess. Well, that does it, and I hope that you'll give sport, if you have a chance, read a few if you can, and you might enjoy them. Um, they're surprisingly good, uh, even if the general population didn't seem to accept them as well as the other genres. So, there you go. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.